I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters of all types. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews with people dealing with all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Here's today's program. Welcome to today's podcast. With me today is Heather Kelly, who is the Emergency Management Director for the City of Kirkland, Washington. We'll be talking about the onset of the coronavirus here in the United States, which is where it landed was Kirkland. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. And Heather, briefly, what's your, what's your emergency management professional background? What's been your, your experience? So um, I'm one of those typicals. I started back in the late 1980s as fire EMS, working in the field, doing patient care, um, as well as in the hospital. From that, I transitioned into doing training and consulting with businesses on emergency preparedness, which led me into my emergency management career. Um, started out in a private sector national insurance company as their life safety director. Uh, had the opportunity to join King County Emergency Management, so I spent a few years there and then went back to the private sector with Boeing. Um, had that opportunity to work in a, a worldwide organization and then transitioned to Snohomish County where I served as the EOC manager for the 530 slide, the OSO landslide, and then the recovery lead for several years which then brought me to what I thought was taking a break, but Kirkland asked me to join them. And I've been with them since 2017. And I serve, as you said, as the emergency manager overseeing all aspects of city preparedness and response. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's pretty varied, both public and private sector experience there. And we've worked uh, together. Uh, one thing I tell people is, um, Oh, I was the director and you were the, I think, excise and training person and you made up a t-shirt. We were coordinating a uh, earthquake exercise and the t-shirt said something like Eric's uh, dream and on the back side said Heather's nightmare. So It was actually a pan flu exercise. Okay. All right. Well, even more perfect. <laughs> I found the t-shirt the other day, actually. It says Eric's vision and on the back was Heather's nightmare. Okay. There you go. But at least now we're, we're talking about pandemics today yes. here again, so many years later. Well, I, you know, Kirkland was the very first city they hit by this. So, you know, recount for our listeners what the timeline, initial actions, reactions were to discovering COVID-19 was in a care facility in Kirkland. Um, and uh, in, in particular, where were you when you heard this and uh, did, did it make any initial impression on you? Right. Um, so I had been actually that week prior to February 29th, that week I was actually in training. So I had been out of the office down at King County for training all week. But we had some briefings from um, Washington State about kind of things were ramping up. And so I actually came, left training on that Friday morning, the 29th, met with our city manager and said, look, something's coming with this. I don't know what, but Inslee's talking a lot and I'm not comfortable. Let's get a task force together starting Monday to do some planning on what would happen if it came to Kirkland. And he said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. So that was our intention. Friday afternoon, one of our firefighters started putting together the pieces that we had had an increase in calls to a care center in Kirkland. And the people were pretty sick. And so the fire group kind of started chatting. And then about 11 p.m., 
the local hospital emergency manager called me and said, we had our first COVID fatality and your team transported them. And so that immediately started our system together. We had a leadership call with fire resources and by midnight we had activated the EOC. Okay, I was, <laughs> my next question was gonna be about when did you activate the EOC? But, uh, and I think that's great, you did it early. That helps coordinate things. So um, uh, kudos to you for, for doing that because that gets the coordination going uh, on it. So way to, way to go. And um, was everybody, uh, as, as somebody we know used to say, all at Twitter before we had Twitter, you know? <laughs> or was it, okay, let's figure this out? I think it was a little both. I mean, Aside from the community concern for the patients we were caring for, we realized very quickly when we started doing contact tracing, the number of firefighters and potentially police officers that were impacted by this situation. And that became um, a little scary, a little overwhelming. When you look at a third of your workforce is being put out for several weeks, that becomes how do we maintain critical essential services to the community? Right. And that was a, that, that was a fire service. The fire department. Correct. Um, and which included, though, we have a regional medic capability. So medics were involved with that as well. So it, it had a, a big impact to the ability to service the community as a whole, aside from addressing what is COVID and what does it mean and where really is it at? Okay. Um, well, being first to deal with COVID-19 or any new hazard can be challenging. Uh, you mentioned the oh so mudslide. We, we don't have to go into that, but it wasn't clear at first how big that event was. And so early in any disaster emergency, um, there's, in this case, is the fog of the virus. Um, what did you run into? I mean, we're still learning more information about the virus, but what, what do you recall as being the unknowns uh, in the beginning that you maybe didn't even re recognize as unknowns? I, th I think the biggest unknown initially was the transmission factor. You know, was it airborne? Was it touch? Was it fluids? And not really understanding how it was moving about in the community either. Um, why were we suddenly getting a spike in calls at a totally different facility? Come to realize there was staff that shared roles at both facilities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was some of the things that it seemed like very quickly, the concern became, this is not an isolated facility and it's already out of the box, if you will. It's already gone down the path and because of visitors and staff and transfer of patients, the exposure was far bigger than I think we really understood initially. Right. Um, and I think we saw that in later days as to where that became prevalent. Yeah, we continue to learn, learn more and you know, it, Certainly, I don't know, emergency management in general has really gone through the, the whole personal protective equipment issues that have uh, evolved throughout the country. But at what point for you did PPE uh, become an issue for the medical community and in the city? And you know, if, was there an initial shortage right away? Or if so, how did you respond? I think that's probably about the only thing we'll say that was good about being first. Um, that Saturday morning, our procurement unit came in and they literally drove to every medical warehouse in the county and picked up supplies. 
So we built a stockpile early on simply because nobody else had it yet. So right. we were able to do that. We were able to leverage UASI products that had been brought in for different things over the years and caches that had been bought. We, the Ebola supplies that we had acquired. That we I know. Had. So we're, we're acronym free. So you mentioned UASI. Federal grants to the Urban Area Security Initiative. Um, okay. Previously, you know, years ago, had bought supplies and protective equipment, so we were able to main, you know, leverage that. For us, that was the benefit. It allowed us to share with our partners right around us while they were initiating going through this with the medic program, some of the other departments. Um, but I think that was our first key: is we were able to get a good stash because we were the epicenter. Okay. And then later on in the pandemic, were you, like everybody else, requesting additional supplies through the system, or did what did your supply hold up? Um, yeah, I mean, our supplies held up, but that goes back to your other question about the fog and the uncertainty. And when you start calculating seeing hundreds of patients when you normally see a handful a day, you don't know what supplies you're going to need. What we actually ended up finding more challenges with is the basic cleaning supplies to keep city operations going. Sanitizer, bleach, those types of things actually became scarce very quickly. Um, and we, you know, we all know the joke of the toilet paper disappearing off the shelves, but yeah. you know, the hand sanitizer, the bleach, the Clorox, the you know, Lysol sprays, all those things disappeared quickly as well. And that's not something that we had to stop up. If you find a supply of soft soap, let me know because I can't find it still for a refill. So. Yes, um, exactly. We're still months into it. We haven't caught up with some of the basic community needs. Yeah. We're doing a pretty good job with the healthcare and the first responders because we recognize those, but I don't think we've really recognized the day-to-day -day community needs. If you're still looking for bleach, Home Depot had a bunch of it. Good <laughs> so, anyway, um, so previously you mentioned this whole issue with fire department personnel and percentage of people out. Um, when we chatted and talked about doing this uh, podcast, you mentioned uh, how critical it was to have human resources and legal involved early in the event. I, I think that's not a typical action by emergency managers to do this. So how, how did that evolve and what was the benefit? Yeah, well, some of it comes from my lessons learned with the OSO landslide and the importance of the legal interpretations and understanding from the long-term bigger picture of an incident. The other side of it, though, is all of our firefighters and several of our police officers, our chaplain, different people that were exposed and put into quarantine, that became a major um, labor and industries question. Is this a workplace exposure? Is it an L&I claim versus an insurance thing? And, and so having HR there to provide that guidance um, working with unions, we can make decisions in the EOC and in unified command of actions and things we're going to do, but somebody has to run that by the unions to make sure it works and we're not going to get into labor issues. And that's not just fire and police, but that became public works and, you know, all of our other employees. So it was important to have them there. Um, as the governor and the health officers started putting out proclamations and directives and orders, it was really key for our legal team to be able to interpret and analyze that and say, what does that mean to the city? What does that mean to our workforce? Um, you know, defining essential employees versus necessary versus we want them here. So as the more and more legal components came into it, it was interesting and, and necessary for our attorney team 
to really give good guidance to leadership and council as to what we can and can't do. Um, and what the, I think the, the learning moment for a lot of emergency managers and city leadership was the health officer trumps everything else. Um, you know, and when they issue an order, it does override proclamations and other authorities. And, you know, some folks might not listen to this, might not be familiar with union, union contracts, but one of the things is the workplace and safety is a negotiable uh, item. So I, I, I can see how that would be uh, good. And I, I, I guess I'd ask you, sometimes, um, emergency managers may be hesitant to try and bring in legal and all that because just, they feel like they're going to be hamstrung uh, based on all the rules or that are put in place or will be told no. How, how did you find that whole experience? Um, I think I was fortunate and I've had a working relationship with our legal team from the day I came here. And so there was already an established mutual respect and understanding. Um, they, they take into consideration the knowledge and the experience that I bring to the table from emergency management to give them guidance, as well as they're looking out for the liability and risk and, you know, the bigger picture issues you say. So, you know, you've said this before, we'll say it forever until we're both retired and gone. Relationships are everything and trust has to be built over time. Um, you know, I looked around my EOC one day and I, I had to smile because the city manager and the attorney we're sitting there listening to our ops briefs because they valued the information. And that's not something I'm used to seeing. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, again, getting those relationships in, in place. So they know you, you've built some trust. It's a big deal. And like you say, when we're gone, I don't know what that means when we're dead. <laughs> or just I retired, but <laughs> <laughs> retired. I don't know. Uh, I think I'm oozing toward that, that era, but, um, so thinking back, you know, to the career you talked about early uh, in the podcast, uh, what helped you prepare, prepare for this type of disease event that emerged in your community? Well, I mean, if you remember back to when I was hired at King County back in 2005, six, something like that, I was brought on and worked with you and with the exec's office to write the pandemic flu plan you know, and to get that effort started. And so I think having that kind of knowledge to work through that, um, another federal project that I had worked on was something called IBER, the Interagency Biological Restoration Demonstration. Uh, good, Put me on that good, one too. Very good that you remember that. Uh, yeah, but you know, I actually leveraged a lot of the discussion with that one because that was about an anthrax exposure and recovery and what is clean and what is safe and, you know, what measures do we need to put in place for employees? And so I was able to leverage past experiences and projects that I've worked on over the years to apply to something, you know, we never really thought would be our, what they say, once in a lifetime, that I think I'm on my third once in a lifetime. But, you know, it's something like that. Um, internally to the city, we had done previously in the spring a COOP exercise. Now, granted, the scenario... Okay, COOP, COOP. Oh, sorry, you're good. <laughs> continuity of operations, continuity of government exercise. And the scenario was taking out City Hall because of an infrastructure issue. But we were able to apply what we learned in that exercise to the pandemic with the telecommute issue and with employees not being present. So I, I guess I would say to emergency managers is 
think outside the box and you know those things that you think you're doing because you have to you're checking it or because someone told you to can later be applied to something you never dreamed of okay well you're kind of answering this last question but well i'll, I'll answer it more ask you to answer more specifically this be becoming prepared for the unexpected and, and i know you, in your background you have these other things what about the entire flexibility i would say for instance let's talk briefly about the oso mudslide as an example and that what became i think the largest mudslide in the history of the united states if you take mount st helen's eruption out of it right and this the fog of the landslide no one had any idea how big that was it was just the unexpected nature of it, the unexpected nature of this. So you've been, if you will, surprised a little bit. I mean, you've been prepared, but what, what else would you say about the unexpected? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I have hanging in my EOC and in my office two words, flexible and adaptable. You know, that has got to be the mantra of emergency managers, because you're right. We plan, we train, we take classes, we talk, but each disaster in and of itself is unique and different and we can pull the little pieces together to do the best we can in the uncertainty and in those that fog of the incident where it takes you know they keep talking it takes several days to really get situational awareness understood yeah it does and then sometimes longer um, and being able to adapt to new information and particularly information that doesn't sit well with you also was a great example the thought was a different area had slid and when it was discovered and realized that a community was impacted directly and missing it we all had to shift what we were thinking and what our plans were because it became a different operation and i think with covid coronavirus i, I think that's been the the lesson for all of us through this is what you think you know today wait a week it'll be different yeah. Or something new will come up there's there's a reason they call it a novel virus and I think that's the biggest thing is don't get entrenched in what you think is the answer because the information coming forward may have to have you switch that all up yeah the aspect of old science that we've seen playing out that you know what we knew yesterday and thought to be true is being uh, massaged you know isn't that it was false it's just we didn't have all the information so. yeah Listen, Heather, this has been terrific. I think people will uh, appreciate your insights there. And I hope that you're not surprised anytime soon with something new, although I, I call earthquakes the um, coming shore disasters. So automatically comes to surprise. So best wishes to you and uh, in your job there in Kirkland, wherever you are. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I know I appreciate learning from other EMs, so I hope some of this might be helpful to others as well. Right. Uh, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you, Heather, for joining me today. Uh, reminder to everyone to be safe and think about how a disaster might impact you and your family and what you can do about it now before that happens. Uh, take care, be safe, and tune in again soon. Thanks for listening to today's Disaster Zone podcast. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters and what people and organizations are doing about them. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.